Well, good morning. My delight to be here with you today. I bring you greetings, of course, from the church at St. Andrew's Baptist. I miss them dearly this morning, but delighted to be with you to share in God's word together. And that's what we'll do just now. Let's turn in our Bibles to Exodus chapter 3. We'll read what is to many of us a familiar passage. And just before we come to read God's word, let me pray in the words of a prayer that McShane used. Anoint our eyes, O holy dove, that we may prize this book of love. And stop our ears made deaf by sin, that we may hear your voice within. Break our hard hearts, Jesus, our Lord, in our inmost parts, hide your sweet word. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to read today from Exodus chapter uh, chapter 3 and from verse 7 and following, but as with any situation where we're not walking through a series, we kind of parachute in. So I'd like to give you just a, a tiny little bit of context, first of all. What we see here is we're in a situation where Israel are enslaved in Egypt, and they have been that way for 400 years. And also what we have on this occasion, on a mountain where God sees the, the, the revelation of the Lord before him in a burning bush. Moses has been on the run for 40 years. And God indeed arrests his attention, arrests Moses' attention through the burning bush here in order, in verses 1 to 6, to communicate who he is and reveal himself in the glory of his holiness and to speak. And then in verses 7 and following, which we will come to, God is telling Moses of his deep concern for his people and explains what he intends to do about this concern. So let's read from verse 7. This is what God's word has to say to us. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their sufferers. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now, go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, 
Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. Go, assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me and said... I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. And I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. And I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed towards this people. So that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and every woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters. And so you will plunder the Egyptians. Amen. This is God's word. Before we delve into the depths of Exodus 3 and also actually going a little bit into Exodus 4 as well today, we need to read another passage which will serve us well in figuring out just what this call and commission that God gives to Moses on this occasion in Exodus 3 means for you, means for us, the church here today in the 21st century. So turn over to Matthew chapter 28. We need to walk through Exodus 3 and 4 with our own great commission in mind in which Jesus Christ in Matthew 28, 19 says to the church, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now let me ask you this question. How have you responded to that commission? Let's just zero in on the the application right from the very start. How have you responded to the commission that you have received from God? 
Because ultimately, if you are a Christian, you are called. Paul reminds us in so many of his letters that there once was a time when you were not called, which means that now you are called, you belong to him. And that you no longer live for yourself, but live for the one who died for you. How have you lived? How have you responded to the commission that's given to those who are called? Let's be honest. Whenever we're called to a task of such magnitude as this, that is one word, even as I look back on this week to my shame, one of the words that tends to describe best the way we respond to this kind of commission is the word reluctance. We're reluctant. We make excuses and attempt to make us exempt from responsibility as well, don't we? We've all heard people offering the excuse, or even maybe we've offered these excuses ourselves. Well, you know, people just don't want to hear this nowadays. I wouldn't know really what to say. Some people have some pretty good arguments nowadays. I wouldn't know what to say. I don't know the Bible well enough. Well, I'm afraid these people won't like me anymore. People will think I'm imposing my ideas on them. uh, Or I think that just living a good life is enough of a testimony. Or I don't have the gift of evangelism. Friends, our reluctance creates a problem for us on two levels, okay? Number one, it's a problem because, as Mark Dever says, what we end up doing is we protect our pride at the cost of a person's soul. In the name of not wanting to look weird, he says, we are content to be complicit in their being lost. Lord, help us. Secondly, it's a problem because God does not desire reluctance. God desires obedience. So how does God respond to our reluctance and indeed our excuses? Are we excused? Are we encouraged? Are we excommunicated? Well, this is what I want us to look for as we walk through Exodus 3 and 4, where Moses, a reluctant Moses, we will see, receives his own great commission. Let's look at verse 11 in your Bibles in Exodus chapter 3. And we hear excuse number one coming from Moses. I'm not capable... Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? In other words, God, I see a slight weakness in your plan. Me. I'm, I'm not capable of such a task. Pharaoh is one of the most most powerful men in the world with weapons and the finest of horses. I've been on the run from from that nation for 40 years and all I've got are some sheep. The last time I tried to help my people in that land, as we, you can look back on in Exodus 2, they rejected me and the reality, that really knocked the stuffing out of me actually. Plus, I'm 80. I'm 80. I'm just not as eager as I was when I was 40. These are the things that Moses is essentially bringing to mind. Who am I? Church, I wonder if that's how you feel when you hear Jesus calling you to go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Do you look at yourself and you reckon you're too old, too tired, 
too ill-equipped, too inexperienced, with too many failures in the past. Do you hear that Great Commission in response saying, who am I? I'm just not capable. For Moses, and indeed for all of us, when it comes to the mission that God has called us to carry out as his people, this is the first thing that we need to call to mind every time. Look down at verse 12. God says, I will be with you. I will be with you. So you see what's happened here? Did you notice that God doesn't actually say, Oh Moses, don't be so hard on yourself. You've got a low opinion of yourself. He doesn't say that at all. Instead, it's as if the Lord's saying, You're absolutely right, Moses, but I didn't choose you because you were capable. I chose you because I am in the habit of choosing the foolish things of the world to shame the wise and the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God has just accepted Moses' inadequacy as one of the facts of the situation, but then countered it with the adequacy of his own divine, mighty, powerful presence. I will be with you. And Jesus Christ, friends, does the same for us in Matthew 28, doesn't he? He assures us of his presence, not just his presence with the disciples, and then when the last one died, that was his presence cut off. No, his presence with us always in the church. The church. That's who this commission is given to. And we can trust in that faithful promise that he will be with us. What will it take for us to believe that, brothers and sisters? What will it take for us to believe that when it comes to the success of God's mission, it's not who you are that matters, it's who he is? Well, if Moses' first excuse involved pleading incapability, his second excuse involves pleading ignorance, I'm not knowledgeable. Look with me at verse 13. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I tell them? Here we see one of the most common fears that surface in a person who is called and commissioned to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. We think we lack the necessary knowledge of who God is, what he is like, what he has done, and essentially we quake in our boots. This is the kind of apprehension and anxiety that grips Moses, and indeed, many of us can relate to this because this same anxiety and apprehension has gripped us. But God, how does God respond to that kind of excuse? Well, he responds on this occasion by revealing himself and doing so, so amazingly. This is what God is doing in this scene, not only via the burning bush, but by actually speaking to Moses. And God actually reveals himself so personally to Moses by telling Moses his own divine name. Look down in verse 14. God says to Moses, I am who I am, or I will be whom I will be. So when Moses says, even if I go on this mission, I'm, I think I'm going to make a mess of it because I don't know what to say about you. God says, listen, here's who I am. This is my name. And this is the name in which you will go. And this is the name under which your mission, which is my mission, will see success. Do you get that, friends? 
Does that hit home for us? Do we pay attention when God reveals himself to us personally? And maybe someone here today is even asking, well, how does God reveal himself to us personally? I certainly don't see any bushes bursting into flames as I'm walking the dog. And I certainly don't hear him audibly speaking to me. Do you not hear God speaking to you? Does God speak to us anymore? Oh yes, he does. And no matter how much you deface it, and how much you scribble over it, or how much you redact it and tear out pages, it remains the truth. It remains the power through which God has revealed himself to us. Through which God equips you, friends, the church, to go and not only share the good news by which a person can have their whole status before God transformed through faith, their whole lives transformed into his likeness. You make disciples. Does God speak anymore? You better believe it. He reveals himself to us. Pay close attention. And we wonder why there is a rallying call in our churches for expository preaching. It's so that saints are thoroughly equipped for sharing this gospel. So what we see here is that God counters Moses' fear of not knowing enough by revealing himself so wonderfully, so personally. But here is an absolutely wonderful thing that we need to keep in mind, which doesn't count as an excuse, but God tells us something pretty amazing in verses 16 to 22. The Lord tells Moses that his mission will see success. Look with me at verse 16 first of all, where God reiterates the command for Moses to go. And then in verse 18, we read this, the elders of Israel, what's that word there? will listen to you, will listen to you. Then again in verse 19, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. And then at the end of verse 20, he, what's that word there? Will let you go. It's as if God says to us, or to Moses here, you're worried that the people I'm sending you to save won't listen to you. And you're actually worried that others might hurt you. But I am telling you, they will listen to you and your mission will see success. And the same applies to the church's call to go and share the gospel also. The people God has chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world will hear the gospel, will respond. They'll be released from their slavery to sin and they will know the blessedness of life in Christ. God has assured us also. As Christ has said, I will build my church, that our mission will see success. That his church will remain. That people will come to faith in him throughout the generations. Now the question here that maybe some of you have in mind is this. How can God say with such assurance at this stage that all of this is going to take place? Is this this optimism on the part of God? No. Is it confidence in Moses' ability to persuade people? Absolutely not. Then what reason is there for God's assurance that the people of Israel will be freed? Answer, God is sovereign. 
It's all part of his wonderful plan. God is sovereign and God is in control. And here's where we see again that glorious truth that when it comes to the saving and the rescuing of his people, it's God who does the saving. It's God who does the saving. Yes, he sends human agents like Moses, like us, to be his mouthpiece, but we are merely megaphones through whom God delivers his message. It's God who does the saving. It's the Spirit who breathes new life into dead hearts, and it's Jesus Christ who builds the church. Do you know what that means? That means that we should not be daunted when we find ourselves with an opportunity to speak up and share the gospel. Many would argue that this sovereignty of God in our evangelism actually makes our evangelism pointless. Or else makes us think that we can sit with our feet up as God does the saving all by himself. No, no, no. G.I. Packer says this, so far from making evangelism pointless, the sovereignty of God in grace is the one thing that prevents evangelism from being pointless, for it creates the certainty that evangelism will be fruitful. Apart from it, there is not even a possibility of evangelism being fruitful. Were it not for the sovereign grace of God, evangelism would be the most futile and useless enterprise that the world has ever seen, and there would be no more complete waste of time under the sun than to preach the Christian gospel. The fact that God is sovereign in our evangelism means that it's not pointless. It also means that we don't get downhearted if our sharing of the gospel meets no immediate response. For we know that God saves in his own time. Spurgeon reminds us of this. Regeneration is a great mystery. What can you and I do in this matter? We can share the truth of God with others, and that is what we must do. But to apply that truth to the heart and conscience is quite another thing. He goes on, I have preached Jesus Christ with my whole heart, and yet I know that I have never produced a saving effect upon a single unregenerate man unless the Spirit of God has opened the heart and placed the living seed of truth within it. Truth. Right there, truth. So, Moses, so Charlotte Chapel, let me encourage you to see that you are not on a fool's errand when you go and share the gospel. You have no reason to be ashamed of the message or half-hearted in sharing it and apologetic in delivering it. You have every reason to be bold, to be free, to be natural, to be hopeful and sure of some success. For God can give his truth and effectiveness, an effectiveness that you and I cannot give it. God can make his truth triumphant to the conversion of the most seemingly hardened believer, unbeliever. And you and I will never write anyone off as hopeless and beyond the reach of God if we truly believe in the sovereignty of his grace. In response to that kind of assurance that God gives, as we move into chapter 4, how does Moses respond? In response to the reassurance that God gives that his mission, that Moses' mission is going to see success, we hear excuse number three, I'm not persuasive. Look at verse one of chapter four. What if they do not believe me or, or listen to me and say, the Lord did not appear to you? In other words, Moses' response is, 
I'm not quite sure that I'm going to meet the kind of success that you're promising. I'm, I'm not sure that that's what I'm going to see. And to be honest, I'm not persuasive enough to convince them of the good news that you're telling me to share. That they're going to be released from their slavery, brought into a land flowing with milk and honey. Typifying salvation for us. Friends, I wonder if that's how we respond in the past to God's call to proclaim. What do we discover about ourselves then when we see that we have responded with dubiety instead of confidence as to whether or not we will meet the assurances and see the assurances that God has promised us in his word? Or what does it say about us that our sharing of the gospel is held back by an overwhelming sense of our inability to persuade people that we're telling the truth? It says that we lack confidence in God's word, which is in fact Moses' problem. It seems that all the while that God has been offering words of reassurance in chapter 3 and verses 14 to 22, Moses again seems to be gripped by his own inadequacy. It grips us often, doesn't it? But how does God respond when we react like that and respond like that? You could, you might well expect to read on and hear the Lord say, didn't you just hear what I said? Didn't you just hear what I said about you will see success? He won't let you go at first, but then you, he will let you go. Are, are you not listening? But I love the fact that we do not see here a stern rebuke. Instead, we see A father responding in patience and love. A father God who condescends to Moses' weakness, as he does with us, in order to do what? To do what? To reassure Moses. Look at verses 4 and Verses, uh, chapter 4, verses 2 to 9. And this is where we see God gives Moses three signs, which are intended for the attention of the ones he is being sent to. And when they accompany the good news that God calls him to proclaim, these signs serve to confirm the words of God. And for Moses in this instance, these signs also address his reluctance to go. It's as if God says, look, if I can take the lifeless and the ordinary, like the wooden staff, and do something extraordinary with it, turn it into a snake, then you should trust my ability to transform the lives that I send you to preach to. And if I can take something that is as impossible to cure, such as the skin condition you had when I told you to put your hand inside your cloak, and then renew it and restore it perfectly, then you should have faith in the help that I will give you to restore the people who are rotting away in their slavery. And if I can take the very life source of the oppressor, Egypt, in the form of the Nile, and in an instant overwhelm that power with a mighty demonstration of my own power, turn it to blood, you have nothing. Nothing to fear. Nothing to worry about. Brothers and sisters, when it comes to heeding the call to go and make disciples... Do you find reassurance in God's promise that when we share the gospel, we do not rely on powers of persuasion, but on the power of God? Do you believe that? Now let me ask you, does your life demonstrate that? It's a hard question that I ask, and I ask myself. 
Do we believe truly that the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes? Romans 1.16. Do we believe that? I pray in your hearts you're saying yes. Is that enough to encourage you? Or will you, like Moses, offer up excuse number four? I'm not eloquent. Look with me at verse 10. Read Moses' response. Moses said to the Lord, Oh, Lord, I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. In other words, Lord, listen. Some people's tongues are light and free. They speak with such precision. Their logic is utterly masterful. My mouth, my tongue kind of feels like a tumble dryer. Okay, everything just rumbles around in there and they just, the words just come out all wrong. That's essentially the excuse that Moses is offering. We know how that feels. We're part of that club. But here's where we learn another important lesson, church. God's mission. This comes from one of your, your, your dear boys gone by, Alistair Begg. God's mission does not rely on the efficiency of the messenger, but the sufficiency of the message. Too true. Thank the Lord for that. Thank the Lord for that. That's why in verse 12, God simply says to Moses, Go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to, to say. And I don't believe for a second, church, that that promise has expired. God has not stopped teaching us, giving us knowledge, giving us the words to say by his spirit. That's why it's inexcusable to excuse ourselves from, from God's mission by, by pleading in eloquence. Proclaim it simply. Proclaim it the way you have been taught faithfully from this pulpit over weeks, months, and years. And do it with the, these words from the Apostle Paul in mind from 1 Corinthians 2. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was, was, was with you except what? Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Let that encourage you this morning if you're a new believer. And you're, you're overwhelmed by this prospect that, oh, I'm a Christian now, I'm called, I have to go. The preacher says I've got to go and tell everyone about it. If you know enough to be converted, you know enough to share the gospel, friends. Share away and see God at work. Let me continue with Paul's words. I came to you in weakness and fear, he says, with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Why? So that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Keep that in mind. The power of evangelism is not in our ability. It's in the gospel. It's in the gospel. And as if that is not enough for Moses, God reminds him again of his divine sovereignty in verse 11 when he asks him, Who gave man his mouth? Who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Am I not sovereign? Is it not I? Am I not in control? Now go. Enough of the excuses, Moses. It's my omnipotence that matters, not your incompetence. Just go. Go, friends. 
Well, what excuse could Moses, could we possibly have left in the light of all of that that God has, has shared with us, of, of those, the way in which he has responded to those four excuses? In light of all of that, what on earth could cause us not to go? The answer, excuse number five. I'm not willing. That's a refusal to accept the call. I'm not willing. Look at verse 13. Oh Lord, please send someone else to do it. Why? Why why refuse God whenever he assures so much? It's simple, friends. By his unwillingness to share God's mission, he exposes his lack of faith in God. Unwillingness is no excuse. Fundamentally, sharing God's mission to proclaim the gospel and reveal his great salvation is a matter of obedience to the, to the will of Jesus who commands us saying, Go. Go. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Hudson Taylor hit the nail on the head here. You've all heard it before, I'm sure, when he said, the Great Commission is not an option to be considered, but a command to be obeyed. I'm not willing, he said. But now look at verse 14. The result of Moses' unwillingness. The Lord's anger burned against Moses. Literally, his nostrils flared. The Lord looks for trust and obedience in us, friends. When he has called us, he encourages us to take on board what Paul has said, that we no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for you. That means that you take, when you are called, when you are saved, you take the agenda that you had for your own life with everything that tops the list, your career, your priorities in relation to family, the amount of money that you would like to earn, and you scrunch that up and you chuck that away and God gives you a whole new agenda. And the very top of that agenda is the commission to preach the gospel, to share his good news of the great salvation that's offered to us freely by a gift of God through faith in Jesus Christ who died on the cross as our substitute, taking away our sin, who averted the wrath of God that we might stand one day before him in his presence singing, holy, holy, holy. And we are unwilling. I am unwilling. The Lord desires trust and obedience in us. It is a shameful thing, says Spurgeon, for a man to say he is a follower, a disciple of Jesus, and yet decline obedience when God's will is known. Even still, though, God demonstrates his great patience in Moses with this excuse, saying, look, I'm sending Aaron to you. You're not on your own. I'm putting you on a team. Look around you, brothers and sisters. You're on a team. 
You are a church. Called out to love, to be a witnessing community of God's loving grace who loves enough to go. In the same way that Jesus set your example to go into the gutters in order to bring them out. To demonstrate the great salvation that God has promised will come. Even today. If you're here today and you're not a Christian. You'll probably make for the exit pretty quickly. Actually. These people are going to descend on me. And convert me. If you say that you've not been listening. You need to know how much we love you. Okay. You need to know how much we take this seriously. And how much Christ has done for us. And what he has done for you. That we are willing to count the cost of the thing that breaks our hearts, of, of our relationship with you possibly being broken to some extent. Whether you are a close friend, whether you are a family member. You know we preach the gospel to you and share what Jesus has done with great delight because of what he's done for us. We can't help but sing about it and talk about it. But there is that little fear that niggles us where we think that if we share, it's going to affect our relationship with you. But please believe us, it is far more loving for us to tell you the truth and have you reject us than to never tell you the truth at all and have you career towards that punishment that is reserved for those who do not come to God through Christ in faith. So the call today for you is to believe. Let him take your agenda for your life. Scrunch it up and give you a whole new one that's far, far better. A new agenda that will be topped, brothers and sisters, by the calling to go and preach the good news to all creation. And even knowing that point two, point three, point four, point five, every other item on that agenda serves the first. So the way you parent your the way you are a parent to your children, the way you love your husband or your wife, the way you go to work, all of that should serve the number one priority of proclaiming the gospel. Here's why this is so important. And I finish with these words from John Piper. The neglect of this mission and evangelism is a problem we must avoid at all costs. It's not just a matter of leaving men in their sins. It's saying no to God's greatest concern. The spreading of his glorious name among the peoples of the world If that is his passionate concern, it must be ours. It must be ours. So for the excuses that Moses offered, he received grace. For the excuses that you and I offer, we receive grace. And we receive assurances. We receive promises. We are loved. So go.
go. Go. Let's play. Father, we praise you for that great salvation that is ours in Jesus Christ. That you, Jesus, laid aside your majesty, laid aside everything of heaven to take on the form of a human, to to take on that servanthood where you would even at one day stoop to wash the feet of your betrayer. And that you would willingly, in submission to the Father's will, go to that cross where all of our sin nailed you there and you paid the price and you paid it in full and you declared it is finished. And you rose from that grave three days later declaring to all who will believe in you as I live, you also shall live. And thank you for that glory that we have as being called to believe in you and indeed called to proclaim this great news of salvation. Help us to be faithful to you and not reluctant. And for all of those times when we have been reluctant and made excuses, forgive us. And for the times tomorrow, this week, and then the months to come, we will make the same excuses, forgive us, and help us to rely and trust in the sufficiency of your grace and the assurance of your forgiveness for us. And may we daily preach the gospel to ourselves every morning that we might remind ourselves every morning that this is a day when we are called to go and proclaim the good news to all creation. Fill us with your spirit. Empower us with your words and with the boldness to speak, to resolve to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified in our lives and in our witnessing. This we pray in the mighty and powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.